welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. Thank you, music team. As probably many of you, I never heard that song, but man, those words were great. That was great. Thank you, Ken and music team. So if you have your Bible, go ahead. I invite you to turn to the book of Psalms and the 39th Psalm. So Psalm 39. We'll be there this morning. And it kind of kind of necessitates a not so popular, not so touchy-feely kind of subject to speak on, but it has to be said, and that's what we'll look at uh, this morning. So there is an old famous poem by a British missionary named C.T. Studd, who re uh, he wrote a poem that repeats many times. It says, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. And so we're going to look at a portion of scripture this morning that makes this point very, very clear in Psalm chapter 39. It's a very sobering passage. And the Psalms as a whole uh, are such a blessing, especially when we're kind of in that season of life, right, where we, where we don't feel like maybe God is very close to us, when in reality we're, we're not very close to God, but, but and we consider we might not be in the ideal season of our lives, and we might feel like lamenting and borderline complaining to God, maybe even about God to himself. And saying things like, God, I don't know why I'm in this situation you've placed me in. I don't know why do the unrighteous seem to prosper, seem like everything is going great for them in their lives, but the righteous seem to stumble at every point. Why, God? Why do you allow this, why do you allow this to happen? Aren't you good? Don't you care about your people? Right? And, we, and many times in the Psalms, particularly David and Asaph, they... they articulate these thoughts over and over again. And so it can be kind of encouraging at times uh, when we read that and we see that, wow, even David felt these same thoughts. And so we can learn from that. And so we're going to read Psalm 39. I'll read the entire psalm. It's not a very long psalm, but we'll focus on verses 4 to 6. So read with me now Psalm 39. Where David writes, he said, I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me as I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute, I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me, I am spent by the hostility of your hand. 
When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me, that I may smile again, before I depart and am no more. And that is God's word. As we see, Psalm 39 is pretty interesting, right? So first, we'll look at the first three verses, and then we'll spend most of our time on verses 4 through 6. So, but starting at verse 1, right, David says he commits to not speaking ill of God in front of unbelievers, which might seem kind of, kind of weird, right? Why do we need, why would he feel the need to make that kind of commitment? What is significant about that? Why make a a particular commitment specific to not speaking ill of God in front of those who reject God? And so to answer this question, I'd like to kind of share an illustration here. If you, if you're married, right, or you have any kind of close relative or very close friend, close family member, and, you know, imagine maybe things aren't, aren't so great between you and him or her, and you know of someone that just absolutely despises them. So let's say you're married and your wife, some, you're, you're, you're not in that great season of life in your marriage, and you know someone who you might want to go to counsel, go to get some counsel from them regarding your marriage, but if this person absolutely hates your wife and doesn't like your wife and, and uses any excuse to speak ill of her, then why would you go and speak to this person about them? All they're going to do is use it as more, as more dirt on her, on the other person. It would be very unwise to do that. In the, in, in a, what you ought to do is to, go to, is to seek counsel from someone who loves that person just like you do, right, and can have a little more of a reasonable approach in you reaching out to them. So in the same way, lamenting or complaining about God or complaining about your Christian walk in the presence of God's enemies or even maybe a new believer or an immature believer, that does no good. All it is going to do is cause that other person to stumble or drag them further down in their own confusion or their own unbelief. That would be very, very unwise to do that. I I think we can all see that. Because when they hear you, someone who claims to follow Christ, uh, say that you're unhappy with God or that you're discontent with where God has you, would they not say, well, look at this guy. This guy says he's a Christian. He's been a Christian for how long? And he doesn't like where God has him. He doesn't like that he says God doesn't take care of his people. Why am I going to become a Christian then? Right? And so what we do is we ought to go to someone perhaps even more mature than us when we, when we feel like or think that we have some kind of discontentment in our own spiritual walk. We go to a more mature believer who has perhaps been through that where you are now and has come out on the other side, right, and can provide wise counsel. Our conduct in front of unbelievers is very important to the Lord, as we see in Romans chapter 2, verse 24, that says, when Paul, when Paul writes, he says, For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And so we see that that we are held accountable if our conduct, if our speech 
leads one of God's enemies to just simply blaspheme God's name even more. And also in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we see how, I mean, 1 Corinthians is just a laundry list, right, of, God, of uh, Paul uh, uh, speaking with God's Holy Spirit of addressing this church's laundry list of issues, right? And one of them in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 was that if they would have a dispute amongst each other within the church, they would go to a secular, to a worldly judge to try to solve their problem, right? And may that never be. They're basically airing the church's dirty laundry in front of the world, right? And this is not right. So this is why I think David says he kept quiet in front of God's enemies. But he says, my heart grew hot and I had to speak. And then he spoke to God himself. And now this is what we'll focus on now in verses 4 through 6, where David says in, the, in verses 4 and 5, he says, O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths in my lifetime as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. So here again, as I mentioned, it's not a, not a topic or kind of a subject that we like to think about very often, but the brevity of life, the fact that life is and can be very short. And in David's kind of petition to God, he's not, I don't think he's asking God to die. He's not asking for God to take his life or to know the date of his death. I don't think that's what he's getting at. But he wants God to teach him to know and understand how brief life is. And we'll see why in a few moments. But not to live under the delusion that you're invincible and that you will last forever or that our lives are the center of the universe, that everything else in creation revolves around me, and that I am the focal point of everything. But he says, God, teach me to know that I'm really nothing. Teach me to know that any worth that I have is only, the only worth that I possess is only from you. Again, admittedly, we do not like this subject much, but it must be said. Because we know it's true, Right? We know it's true, but it's just something we'd rather think about other things. But, and if you've, if, you've, uh, if you've worked with youth very, uh, very much, with youth groups, I know the youth group here just got back from a uh, great uh, camp in North Carolina last night. And so if you've spent much time with youth groups, you know that one of the things that I, mean, I, I did for, for several years and, and one of your main, your main tasks as someone who, in, who instructs youth, particularly like teenagers, is to try to get the idea through to them that do not wait until you get older to get serious about God. Don't wait until you get older because you don't know if that day is even going to come. That, you know, now I'm, I'm like, you know, I'm 18 years old. I've got all this ahead of me. I'll, get, I'll worry about that later in life. That is a lie. How many folks do we know who have said that Right, and then they, they turn 30, 40, and then nothing. Okay, when, when is it, right? It's because that's a lie. It's not going to happen. As Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 1 says, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come, and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Right? Remember God in your youth now, 
while you still have all your physical abilities and you're, and you're, you're, you're so-called healthy and, and, you, and you have your whole life ahead of you and you don't have the baggage that this life brings, because living for this life, accumulating as much wealth as possible, trying to satisfy your drive for pleasure, and trying to make everyone like you and approve of you, right? It is, as the writer of Ecclesiastes says, probably Solomon wrote, it's vanity, a chasing after the wind. As I know, Pastor John wrapped up a series on Ecclesiastes, uh, I think earlier this year, and, or, or last year, and, and so we know we're familiar with that phrase, and chasing after the wind. I mean, why does Solomon say that? Why does he say that kind of chasing after what this life has to offer what does that mean, chasing after the wind? Well, have you ever tried to catch the wind when it's very windy outside and you see everything kind of swirling around and, and leaves and branches going everywhere? I mean, what he's saying, what, what Solomon is saying is that how ridiculous would it look if somebody goes outside and sees it windy and tries to go and catch the wind, right? Oh, I, I, don't, want it to, I don't want the wind to blow on my, on my house or whatever, so I'm going to try to grab it. Right? That would look absolutely silly. But he says, in an even more sense, how even more erroneous is it to think that we can catch everything this life has to offer and that it will satisfy? You might as well try to catch the wind. You might as well be a dog trying to catch a car. Right? And speaking of, speaking of the wind, it kind of got me thinking. I mean, uh, hurricane season is kind of upon us, right? Uh, so my wife and I are from the Miami area, and it's, it doesn't seem like as much a big a deal here, but down there, there some hurricanes have really devastated the, Mia the Miami area. And so when you see the wind and all that it does and the devastation that it can bring, and let it be a... Re I mean, we need to be sensitive when speaking on this, is uh, obviously, but because, again, they can be very devastating, but let it, if nothing else, let it be a reminder also to us of how dependent we are on God and how brief, what a vapor life can be. In the same way as we had, as we had just sung about God not sleeping, right? The scripture says that, that God does not sleep nor slumber. And, but not the case with us. We need sleep. We need our sleep. We are not God. We are dependent upon him. And in verse 5, Kind of going on here to the next verse, it says that, he says our lives, you've made our lives a few handbreadths. A handbreadth was an ancient measuring unit, uh, which literally was the breadth of your hand. So a few inches, um, kind of the base or the width of your hand. And so that was, again, it was an ancient measuring device, kind of like we have inches or feet now. And a few handbreadths, a few of these is basically nothing compared to even this room or let alone the entire universe, everything that God has created. It's just, it's nothing. It's not even worth mentioning, really, in a, in, in a sense. We are but a vapor. As James chapter 4, verses 13 through 15 says, kind of a familiar passage, where James says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. 
why does the Bible say that we, that our lives are a vapor? And to, to kind of illustrate this, look, I, I'm not a coffee drinker, but I know many of us here are, and probably uh, usually it's drunk when it's hot, right? And so if you have a, a mug of coffee, right, that's hot, you see the steam, the, the vapor kind of rising, and you can look at it, and you can kind of see it for a couple seconds, right? You see it, but then it, as it goes up, it kind of disappears, and you don't see it anymore, right? It's gone. It was there. You could see it. You know that it's hot, but the steam rises, and then it's, it's gone. You see it no more. And the scripture says that's how life is. It's here for a moment, but then it can be gone. In verse 6, surely a man goes about as a, sha as a shadow, surely for nothing there in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And that, again, going back to Ecclesiastes, uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 16. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies, just like the fool. And a few verses later, in verse 21 of Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. The point being, not to, not to bring us all down and depress everyone, but to further emphasize the vanity of only living for this life, of only living for what this life has to offer, because Solomon's just pointing out a truth. One day, we're all going to be forgotten. And, you know, and, and I think, you know, I, I work, you know, I work for my children to have a better, better life than, than I had, and hopefully they do the same for theirs, and, and, you know, I work for them, and, you know, they know me, and perhaps their children will know me, and Maybe if we're blessed, their children's children will know me. But ten generations from now, my hair, my lineage is not going to know anything about me. They probably won't even know my name. I mean, think about it. How many names do you know in your lineage that ten generations back? Probably, probably not. <laughs> maybe none at all. And so, a little, a little kind of ex excerpt here from a from a news story. On November 25th, 1895, a cornerstone of ice was laid in Leadville, Colorado, the beginning of the largest ice palace ever built in America. In an effort to bolster the town's sagging economy, the citizens staged a winter carnival. So their economy's sagging, they, let's have a big ice carnival to stimulate the economy. On New Year's Day of 1896, the town turned out for the grand opening. The immense palace measured 450 by 320 feet. The towers that flanked the entrance were 90 feet high. Inside was a 16,000 square foot skating rink. But by the end of March, the palace was melting away, along with the hopes of Leadville. So we, this life on this side of eternity, is like an ice sculpture that's might be as very beautiful and pleasant as it may be, but is simply destined to melt away. So again, why is it important to know this? Why does David say this? Why are we looking at this today? Why is this important? Is David just simply being cynical and he's just, he's just depressed and he's just thinking about death and he's just down on himself? And Why do we need to ask God to 
to show us how short life is, to show us the vapor that we are. Because again, thinking about death is not pleasant. Typically, we don't want to. We want to kind of live under the guise that we're invincible and it might come for someone else, but not me or not my family. To have an eternal perspective, we must ask God for it. Because as we know, as we've said, we, it doesn't come naturally to us. God, help me to know how fleeting that I am. We must ask God for that perspective. And what does it, so what does it benefit us to know that we are just a vapor? And I'll have a, a couple things here, a couple things, a couple kind of applications here, reasons why it can benefit us. Number one, we see the urgency of preaching the gospel. Because if we understand that life is passing away, and we understand who the true remedy for sin and God's judgment is in Christ, then we'll see the urgency to bring that message to a dying world. Because at the end of the day, ultimately, the only thing that is going to matter on that day on that last day, as we all will stand before God, every single one of us, the only thing that's going to matter is whether or not you trusted God, His Son, and His Gospel. When all is said and done, did you trust God and His Son? And we know that God is love. Amen. That is, that's why we're here today, because God loved us. God showed his love for us in sending his son to die on the cross for us. And at the same time, we will never understand God's love if we don't understand God's justice, right? The fact that justice must be satisfied, that sin must be dealt with. God is love, but he is just. And when we hear others say, you know, God is love, I want to focus on God's love and not his justice, you're doing, <laughs> no pun intended, you're not doing justice to his love. Because if we think that we're all fine and that, you know, sin is, you know, God's just kind of like a, kind of like a benevolent grandfather and, and he just kind of just lets things slide and, oh, just let them do what they want, it's no big deal, then, well, yeah, God loves me because I'm so great and I'm so, you know, what's not to love about me, right? What's not to love about us, right? But when we see how God is love but he is just and holy and sin must be dealt with, and then he still sent his son to die for his enemies, well, then we see God's love in a greater light because we see how we've offended him, and still he had mercy on us. And so if you don't know Christ, if you're living under the delusion that on that day your works will have any, any benefit to you on that day when you stand before God and say, well, I went to church sometimes, or, or I went to church every Sunday, and I gave money to the church, and, and all of this, and I taught Sunday school. If that is all we have, we do not have any hope. It's only in trusting that instead of God punishing you on the cross, he punished his son, and his son absorbed his wrath. And now if we turn to him and ask for God's mercy and grace, then he will never cast out anyone who comes to him. And that's the only basis that we can have hope and can have a right relationship with God. So we see the urgency of, of sharing the gospel in whatever way we can with the world, because we know it's passing away. 
And we also see the urgency of Christ's return. Because we know not the day or the hour. And not only that, but as we've seen here in this psalm, we don't know when we're going to be called to him. He, he might tarry and not come for another thousand years. But that just means then we'll, come to, we'll go to him first. And we ought to be prepared for that. And, and, and as we've seen, as we looked in the parables in adult Bible class uh, the last couple weeks regarding his return and the end of the age and the parable of the talents and the minas, and he spoke of his return a lot. A lot more than maybe we, we, we tend to think. And in Mark chapter 13, kind of wrapping it up here, I'll read from Mark chapter 13, verses 32 to 36, and where Jesus is, he's, he's, he's impressing upon his disciples the urgency to stay awake because they know not the day or the hour of his return, just like we don't know. Mark chapter 13, verses 32 through 36 Jesus is saying, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey, when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. So we know, of course, Christ is speaking about his return here, but we can easily use these words and think about our own, our own uh, departure from this life. We don't know when it will happen. And it's not, again, it's not, it's not a truth that just meant to bring us down, but it's meant to have us look up to God and to ask him to give us wisdom in this life and not, not to live under the, the delusion that we're invincible, right, as, as, as we've already said. So let us remain awake, understanding that we are a vapor, just like the steam rising up from your hot coffee. It's there for a moment, and then it, it vanishes, and it can no longer be seen. The only thing that will last is Christ. As Matthew chapter 5 says, heaven and earth, even heaven and earth will pass away as we know it. But Jesus says, my words will never pass away. So may God help us to understand this. And as I mentioned, uh, as I quoted it in the beginning, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let's pray. Father, we come to you again. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we pray, Lord, that we would, that we would not simply be discouraged in a, in a fleshly sense, Lord, but that we would look to you and would seek your wisdom, and that you would, Lord, help us to live in the truth of the fact that we are but a vapor, and we do not know the day or the hour, either of our departure or your coming. Lord, and that that would motivate us to take the truth to a dying world that whose hope is only you, just as our only hope is you. We ask in Jesus' name.